Neil Cohn is an American cognitive scientist and comics theorist who works at Tilburg University. In this interview, he works through how his research on the acquisition of visual languages in comics literacy relates to the broader acquisition of all the cognitive structures that allow us to make sense of the world. I gravitated to Cohn's newest book, Who Understands Comics, um, to some extent because of the acclaim it had received, but mostly because I'm a devotee of the medium, although we talk about whether it should even be regarded as a discrete medium. Who Understands Comics is, in Cohn's words, his psychology book. He explains that the questions he wanted to ask about the ways that we comprehend comics it really dictated that he used these more quantitative styles of analysis. That said, his work is deeply interdisciplinary and he talks about how working across different fields of thought provided a way to avoid a lot of the issues of running into disciplinary constraints in your research that can often shut down conversations, collaborations, and critiques before they occur. He also relates how the hybrid approach that he was using to understand how comics work when he was a graduate researcher meant that nobody knew what to do with him. These moments of blockage forced him to find new routes for doing justice to the power of graphic storytelling, to devise a way to conduct experiments that would inform his theory and theoretical frameworks that could be shaped and revised on the basis of experimentation. While acknowledging all of the comforts of familiarity, Cohn says he's committed to creating space for contesting key heuristic assumptions about how readers of graphic texts do the work of supposedly you know, filling in the gaps within and between panels. You know, that particular assumption that readers are responsible for kind of manufacturing missing information that the cartoonist doesn't provide and that you know readers are somehow automatically just spontaneously able to do this you know it doesn't stand up to empirical research he says especially if we do that research across multiple different cultural contexts and traditions Cohen stresses that there's just not enough awareness of the importance of cultural difference in comics theory but these are crucial, these differences, for thinking through the evolution of distinct systems of visual language. So we may have a cursory sense of the differences between the libraries of comic storytelling in Japan, France, the US, and Canada, but a cursory understanding tends to move us into totalizing about all comics, as though all comic storytellers follow the same patterns when they write, which they don't. Comics are trivialized because they're fun, because they're fun. This way of communicating appeals to people through levity, lavish artwork, the loving integration of text and image. They're cinematic. So it was really terrific to speak with him about his path-breaking research on comics as a visual language. The questions that I wanted to ask you do have to do with who understands comics, questioning the mm -hmm. universality of visual language comprehension. Um, but I actually, I had a question about um, Henry Jenkins, who, <laughs> yeah, okay. you know, has this uh, book uh, on comic studies. It's his, you know, his intervention in comic studies. I don't know if you've read this book. Um, uh, I'm afraid I haven't, so I can't comment with expertise. That's, um, you know, that's totally fine. But it's literally just called Comics and Stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, I see, I see basically connections to your work okay. and especially this idea that um, uh, of blockage, like there's this concept of how certain comics um, uh, are invested in what blockage can do to readers. And mm -hmm. interestingly, you note that 
you don't see it as much in American yeah. comics. Yeah. But what you do see a lot of are splash pages. Um, this is something that Jenkins uh, spends a great deal of time thinking about in comics and stuff. The impact of splash pages and graphic novels. He sees mm-hmm. them as these crucial moments where cartoonists pick a particular, you know, uh, time to just slow down the reader. Um, he says to encourage contemplation amid an experience otherwise dominated by the plot, which mm-hmm. feels like blockage to some extent. But that's mm-hmm. not to me what splash pages do exactly. And even though Jenkins offers a couple of close readings of, you know, gorgeous examples of splash pages from comic fiction, um, he doesn't make it clear to me how splash pages connect to his larger argument about the specific fixation in comics on the power of stuff, the like almost magic quality of things. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you care about splash pages and their unique ability? <laughs> you know, do I care about them? Um, like, do you care about them? And and do you think they have this, this spe- specific importance in comics that Jenkins clearly thinks uh, they do? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I haven't really uh, thought about splash pages in that context. So I guess to, to go to, to, to return to the, the model I present in Who Understands Comics, which is uh, work that's not only presented there, but is also in other places, uh, is that um, the system of the visual languages that are used in comics have multiple component parts to them. So some of the, among those parts are the structure of the graphics themselves. Um, so to break it down for readers who are not, listeners who are not familiar, um, there's kind of three tiers, which is there's a modality, meaning, and grammar. Uh, the modality in this case is the graphic elements of visual representations. Um, the meaning is the information that is being conveyed. And the grammar is essentially how that information is being conveyed. Um, the organizational structures that lead to uh, the conveyance of meaning. Across those tiers of modality, uh, meaning, and grammar, there's all it, it divides this up into both sequences and units. So each modality, meaning, grammar applies to the units, and there's particular structures involved with the units. And then it also impl- uh, is involved with the sequencing. And crucially here, the, there's a distinction I think that's important to make between the sequential meaning, the uh, narrative structures, which are the structures that guide that meaning, and the layout or the composition, the, which is the physical uh, arrangement of elements on a page uh, or on a canvas, if you want to speak more abstractly. So um, the, and I, I think oftentimes people conflate or confuse the narrative structure and the layout, which is the spatial organization of the elements of the story and the contents. So splash pages are uh, an element of the layout of the way in which uh, the content becomes physically arranged. So you can manipulate layouts without manipulating the narrative structure. That said, uh, there may be patterned ways that layouts and uh, narrative structure go together. 
So I think a reasonable, and, and we are looking at this in our research, and this really comes down to both, well, you can do it both by experiments, as in psychological experiments, testing different uh, manipulations for whether, you know, what the effect is of a splash page for any given narrative state, let's say, or you can also look at it in a corpus, uh, which is also what we have done quite a lot of, which is um, uh, we, we've gathered data by annotating and analyzing properties of comics uh, from around the world. Uh, we previously did this with an analysis of 300 plus comics uh, from Europe, the United States and Asia. But in our current work, we're expanding this to many, many, many more countries and many, many, many more comics. Um, so uh, a prediction might be, for example, that splash pages show you uh, the climactic moments of a sequence because they're giving emphasis and size to those climactic moments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an analogy that I've been kind of exploring lately, um, which I, I've thought about for decades since I was in college, but I've actually never written it up anywhere, uh, which is that a byproduct of the effect of layouts is that layouts kind of give you a sense of prosody uh, to the experience of a visual language. So prosody in speech is the overarching sort of sound structure that might give you cues about meaning. Um, This is the intonation patterns, things like that. Uh, There's uh, uh, some work by a Japanese uh, manga theorist named Fusenosuke Natsume. and there's actually a very nice translated article of his uh, by John Holt and another translator whose name escapes me right now that just recently came out. Uh, and Natsume has this belief that's similar to this idea of prosody in layouts that uh, the size and organization of layouts gives you a sense of kind of compression and release depending on where along a page uh, the panels are and the sizing of the panels relative to other panels. And this is really the same sort of sense, like a prosodic sort of uh, structure that's giving you emphasis to different elements that as you read, you are kind of getting a sense of compression as you say, travel down a column and then expansion as you open up into a large panel, something like that. Um, These have not been, these ideas have not really been explored experimentally yet, but I think that there's something to them. And it's worth sort of thinking about those sorts of functions that the uh, layout provides that kind of also facilitates meaning, even though the layout itself is not meaningful. Yeah. And I'm so interested in this element of comics. You know, it, it increases the immersiveness and, and the kind of rhythmic nature of them. Yeah. The rhythm is the prosody. Exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I have questions, too, about like the relationship between music and comics, because I think in, in both instances, you you see a, um, uh, the evolution of, of what is felt to be a higher form of language or a richer form of communication that is also... Um, assumed in many cases to have these therapeutic uses, like music is yeah. often used to, you know, help people reacquire speech, for example. Um, so I want to come back to that for sure. I, I really want to come back to the specific methodology of who understands comics, which mm-hmm. you gestured to. Um, this really massive kind of 
um, you know, study that is, you know, capacious by virtue of the, the, you know, methods that it's adopting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm super interested in that, especially how it models a, a, a new, I think, in some ways, mo- a method of visual analysis. But um, I want to stay with this question of like layout uh, and prosody. Um, I, you know, I like that you point out in your work, for example, that readers of comics often do a global visual search of the mm-hmm. page, or even I think the whole book sometimes. Um, and, you know, Henry Jenkins talks about how we, we flip as comic readers. Um, I wondered if you could explain or expand on your idea that this is actually not an erratic thing that comics readers are doing, um, but maybe part of the process of like picking up the visual lexicon of the, the book they're reading, the tone, the grammar right. uh, of the visual narrative. Sure. So um, that connects to what would be, I think, was chapter two in <laughs> Who Understands Comics, which was all about yeah. the processing of mm-hmm. uh, visual sequences. Much of that was based on my own work uh, in doing both behavioral experiments and uh, cognitive neuroscience experiments on how the brain understands sequences of images. But in the time since, say, my earlier books, where there was really only a handful of empirical studies when I was doing, say, my dissertation on this. Um, Since that time, there's been quite a lot of more studies being done by people who are not me, which is fantastic. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, so I tried to integrate a lot of the insights that has come over the last decade into that chapter. And the kind of result has been this overarching sort of processing, um, uh, sort of flow of processing, which mm-hmm. uh, I call the PINS model. Um, uh, but ultimately what the PINS model breaks down into is that um, when you are reading a comic or navigating a comic or any sort of um, uh, engaging with a visual sequence, uh, you are, uh, you're not just dealing with it as a blank slate. You have, hopefully, if you are proficient, uh, you have acquired different cognitive structures that you're trying to build in the course of uh, this understanding. So in the case of layout, you're trying to build a cohesive sort of structure of assembling together panels into sort of an organized chunking form. Uh, that's not just a linear path moving through a page. Uh, It's you're trying to actually build these chunks that are helping you to navigate and organize the information. Uh, The same thing happens in the narrative structure. The narrative structure is a sort of grammatical structure where you're building chunks of information uh, as you progress through a visual sequence. And in meaning, you're building a mental model that's an understanding of uh, the meaning and the situation that you're is going on in, in, a, in, in any given comic. Um, now you're using those cognitive structures and as you are engaging the pieces of a comic, each panel, also this, these, the same sort of process uh, is what happens when you engage words and sentences and whatnot. And linguists and psycholinguists have been exploring these for decades now. And most, much of what we're showing in the visual sequences that similar mechanisms are going on in the visual sequencing and the digesting of the visual information as in the verbal information. And then of course there's an added aspect where you're integrating the verbal and visual, which I don't even 
really go into that much because you have to start somewhere. So um, mm-hmm. we are going into that. We are exploring those, but it's just a bit complex to do it all at once. Yeah. And I, and I like that it, nonetheless, you know, in the book, you are providing um, uh, uh, this interesting set of terms for trying to, uh, um, you know, begin to grasp for just basically doing the research. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, and it, for example, like, um, I, you know, the, the thing that I was thinking about it, one practical application an everyday application is the fact that, you know, um, uh, you're, you're talking about early childhood acquisition of a visual lexicon, which is, yeah. you know, at a time when it's still relatively easy to pick up the skill of drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you say like the sentiment of, I can't draw actually reflects the insufficient, insufficient learning of a visual vocabulary. Yeah. Um, and I think Linda Berry among graphic novelists is so insightful on this. Like she wonders why people don't draw into adulthood right. in a sense, like queering the assumption that it's immature to draw. And in her teaching, she says that it's, you know, she's partly trying to walk people back to drawing. That's how she puts mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and this seems to like hinge on l- like learning a visual vocabulary um, and I, you know, I, I just feel like it would be a boon to the creative capacity of people in general, if we could convince people to continue drawing, um, oh, sure, and, and, sure. and, and, but to kind of connect it to what you were just saying, like, do you think that it's, it's partly about how complex the multimodal nature of images and text working together actually is like you write about how comics represent the interaction between different types of input and that we make choices when we read. And especially when we create these kinds of chunks these images that are narratively driven is this about the work that our imaginations have to do to build a kind of grammar um well i think it's not just about the amount of work that we have to do but it's about learning the structures that we need in order to do that um Mm -hmm. and ultimately a vocabulary is not just words uh even in just a spoken language the vocabulary also includes uh, the constructions that we use in grammars, the idioms we use, and you know, uh, information at larger and smaller sizes of patterns. And the same is true in visual sequencing as well. The, the lexicon of visual languages is, uh, includes both the individual elements and how we draw them, um, how to draw an eye, how to draw a hand, how to put those together into a body, um, but also the patterns involved with visual sequencing and the patterns involved in layouts. And um, all of this information needs to be acquired uh, in order to competently understand, say, a whole comic. Um, what I was going to get at, in, in, and I don't want to entirely get into the realm of drawing and drawing development, because that's a, that's a, a whole other huge conversation that I've written extensively about. If, if you're wanting me to focus on the who understands comics part, then uh, that's a, that's a whole other big uh, can of worms. That's the thing. It is just gesture yeah. to, but it's this whole other body of research. Yeah. Um, I mean, the part of the thing is that all of this is interconnected and yeah. um, in the, the other works of mine that I'm, I'm currently working on and other places I've, I've tried to provide the kind of broader overview of the global view of uh, the system in, in its entirety. Uh, but that's really hard because it's a, it's a very complex, uh, uh, multifaceted system. Um, so you can only get that so much. Who Understands Comics was is essentially the psychology book 
about uh, the comprehension of comics, where other work of mine is about the specifics of the lexical items and the structures that are going on. Um, this book was really more about the comprehension processes or the developmental processes or uh, uh, the different aspects of the brain uh, that uh, may be different in neurodiversities and how that affects uh, understanding of comics and the, uh, the idea of proficiency as a whole, which are much more kind of psychological notions than the structural patterns. Now, you can't, you don't entirely have a separation between the psychological processes and the patterns because the processes are using the patterns, but they're, uh, uh, at least you can identify them in different ways. This is what in psychology we'd call the differences between, say, representations and uh, processing. Mm. Representations being the the patterns and the elements of uh, knowledge and the processing being the way in which we operate. We, we have operations or mechanisms uh, that deal with that knowledge. So mm. Who Understands Comics is very much my kind of psychology-driven book as opposed to earlier work and other current work that is more about the kind of linguistic representations, the representations that are involved. Um, uh, so if, if I, if I go back to that part, some of the processes that are involved, uh, are things like if you first need to access information, the basic on the basis of which, once you've accessed that information, you can perhaps make predictions about what happens next. And then as you get new information, you might assess whether those predictions are being upheld or whether you need to update uh, your idea of what, what structures are on the basis of new information. So um, to go back to what you had originally talked about, about kind of visual search. So um, one possibility when you first engage a page is that you're gonna search around the page because you're looking for information to access. But you might not do that blindly, as in, I'm just going to radically look around a page. Uh, you, your knowledge, your representations might guide you to not even do that sort of search process. Maybe with your knowledge, you're going to be very focused in knowing, well, I know that pages be usually begin in the upper left-hand corner, so I'm going to direct my eyes straight to that corner without needing to search very much. Um, and you do see this in... Uh, studies of eye tracking, you'll often see, you know, um, sometimes you'll see visual search, especially for more challenging page layouts. But if it's a grid pattern, people very much go straight to that upper left corner. Um, so it's not like an all or nothing thing. It's, it's somewhat based on the properties of the page, as in what you can immediately acquire in one fixation with your peripheral vision, etc., to then realize, okay, this is a page that I can go straight to the left-hand corner with or not. Um, or maybe you know that you should, but you want to kind of explore a page anyways, just to check out what's going on. So you're not deterministically bound by these mechanisms, but there's different options given what knowledge you have. Um, and similarly, once, you know, if you, if you're like, well, I'm going to go right to the upper left-hand corner, um, and I know that this is a grid, or I can very easily acquire what the um, reading path is. Proficient readers will have a fairly directed reading path, and they can read fairly smooth and fairly quickly through a layout without much, say, um, uh, 
erratic eye movements or backward looking what we call regressions in terms of eye, eye movements um, where you kind of bounce around your eye around the page. If you're a proficient reader, you often read fairly smoothly through a comic page. Um, but that it does boil down to proficiency. So um, as is the kind of theme of the whole book, um, you know, the degree to which you have experience with comics will largely guide how you comprehend comics um, and and uh, understand comics, as is in the title. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. In the book, you're using methods of visual analysis that treat images as like sense data or just data. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed to be, as you say, it's your psychology book. So it was important to synthesize research in comics theory from, and I think, you know, it sounds like an overtly scientific quantitative perspective. Um, was that about trying to get a conclusive answer to that title question of the book, you know, or, or does this method make sense because it does let you aggregate large numbers of comic texts? Can the, you know, I guess the, you know, to boil it down, like, can the question of who understands comics be answered without this sort of robust method? Good question. That's a really good question. Um, so, I mean, I have throughout my whole career been doing sort of scientific uh, uh, studies of uh, comics comprehension and structure, um, both on the representations and on the uh, understanding. Uh, I'm trained as a psychologist. I'm, you know, I, I actually as a linguist and psychologist, um, and I am my, my primary field is cognitive science. So um, to me, this is fairly natural. And um, I'm a largely data driven and evidence driven sort of theorist. Um, so I'm not ever really just making things up. It's always based on some sort of analysis that uses uh, some sort of evidence gathering. Even in pure theory, I'm doing things that involve, say, diagnostic tests, where I'm essentially testing my own intuitions against my hypotheses, and then testing it in experiments to see if other people share those intuitions. Um, and I think that it depends on the questions you're asking, which methods you need to use. So if you're asking the question of, you know, who understands comics in the sense of um, who are the people that can actually understand a sequence of images, which was largely what the book came out of, uh, was an abiding sort of observation of uh, uh, that not everybody can understand a sequence of images. And I kept coming upon this in various literature, and it seemed so antithetical to what the assumptions were that you see across many people that people talk about comics are universal and you can use them for everything and you can, you know, uh, use them to talk with anybody. And of course, this is why everybody should love comics because they're universally understandable. And then I kept getting all of this, these papers and, and data from my own studies that said, well, actually, you know, your people's brains understand comics differently based on how much they read comics. And then you show these other studies that show people can't understand comics from various places uh, or that kids don't understand sequences of images before the age of about four. Um, and all of this kind of went against the predominant views. And so if you're going to 
um, make if you're going to answer the question about uh, who understands comics and how, who is it that is able to understand a sequence of images, you have to look at empirical evidence because just sitting and thinking about common assumptions might be wrong. You have to actually look at you know what's going on there, uh, which is why I looked uh, like for years, in fact, trying to find all these cross-cultural uh, studies that may show people uh, who don't understand a sequence of images, uh, why aggregated, you know, many, 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 many studies of kids uh, 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 using sequential images, um, because that's the only really the way that you can answer that question. Um, and similarly, if you want to know what the structures are of comics around the world, you can make sort of you know, casual observations about, well, I see, you know, this is what looks like it's happening in manga, or this is what looks like it's happening in American comics. Um, and your intuitions may be correct. And, and many theorists uh, do have correct intuitions about that. But really, the only way that you can truly answer that is by looking at actual comics and tabulating what is going on with them within some sort of uh, uh, framework that allows you to address the questions that people are interested in uh, because that's the data that's that's if you're making a claim about how say one type of comic works or even a single author or comics changing over time or any of those things i mean you know if you are just casually looking at comics and making claims that's not giving you real evidence uh so it, you might have like i said you might have very good intuitions and are picking up on things but really a quantitative approach is the way that you learn what's actually happening. So um, that's been my guiding assumption. It's, it's an evidence-driven uh, field of study and a manner of study. And it just happens that in my book, every chapter is some other type, some different type of uh, source of quantitative data that I analyze, whether it's um, aggregating data that other people have gathered or uh, reporting on data that has been gathered throughout my own studies. I just want to make one qualification, which is that this is not the only approach that is needed, right? So, yeah, I like the or that can that. be done, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is that like, if you're, if you have particular questions that can only be answered by a data-driven approach, then you should be using that. But mm -hmm. if your questions are not involving this type of data source, then by all means, use a different approach. If you are asking questions that are better approached by a critical discourse analysis or sort of theorizing about um, you know, social issues or something like that, maybe you want to use a different method. And that's totally fine. I'm not a methodological determinist, <laughs> but the, um, the methods should be guided by the questions. I appreciate that, you know, attention to language. I mean, these terms kind of matter. I think it matters in, in who understands comics, for example, that you call, um, you know, readers of comics comprehenders. You know, you're, you're talking about this yeah. group of people who are, you know, um, the objects of your analysis in some sense, who are not, in your view, just readers. You're, you're really trying to study comprehension as you, and you kind of name it as yeah, such yeah. and i you know uh that i think makes makes a lot of sense because it doesn't dismiss what you term their like casual readings of comics that are really presupposing like a literary analysis of, of a comic book 
or graphic novel, let's say, um, the terms mm-hmm. matter, um, would would <laughs> sure. like presuppose a reader, still would, um, or situate yeah. themselves as the like privileged reader of the book. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as you say, the method there, it would just amount, avow its, its method, right. And go from there. And I think, you know, right. the, right. the thing I would, uh, ask you about though, you, you know, in the book at the beginning, you say the study of comics has always lauded itself for its interdisciplinary scope and rightly so, um, you know, data matters here in terms of getting a large, uh, picture or larger picture of trends and comprehension, but what does the interdisciplinarity do to strengthen analysis in a visual medium? Um, and what impasses might interdisciplinarity avoid uh, in terms of like visual analysis? Like, does it avoid that siloing that happens within academia in any way? Or does it reinforce those silos? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so I have always been someone who straddles many different subfields. Um, I... I it's kind of a luxury and a, a curse in, in many ways, because uh, I uh, am someone who is essentially trying to build a, a, a new field looking at this sort of information in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, I um, so it partially goes back to uh, when I was originally trying to do this. It, it took me forever to get into a graduate school because nobody knew what to do with me. As at the time, there was nobody who really did this. Um, and I was very clearly aiming to be in the linguistic and uh, psychological sciences and cognitive sciences, but there's not anybody really doing this in that, that field. So people didn't know what to do with me. So I would kind of get like sent around and I had lots of discussions with lots of different psychologists and linguists of different orientations. And one of the things that they, so there was kind of a consistent thing was everybody kind of said, oh, well, this is really interesting, but I think you're doing it wrong. I think you should be going about doing it, insert whatever way that they do research. Mm. So um, everybody kind of wanted me to do it like they were doing it. So I, I started out being very theoretical. And then I would talk to somebody who's like, well, you really need to be gathering data about different comics because how else do you know what's going on? And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So I just started gathering data. And then um, this is all before I was in graduate school. And then people were like, well, you know, how do you know what people are actually doing? You, you need to run experiments to see what's happening, you know, what people choices people actually make. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. So then I would go off and run an experiment. And then, and then I found myself doing all of these things, mm-hmm. you know, so by the time I actually was in graduate school, being trained for more experimental psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Um, on the side, I was still doing lots of theory, which my main mentor was a linguist. And so he was uh, uh, a theory, uh, uh, more theory driven, although he was very attentive to empirical research. Um, and I also was doing corpus analyses on the side with students and things like that. So I just did all all of these different things. And um, I have always persisted just doing all of these different methods at once. So um, formally, I think in the cognitive sciences and linguistics, uh, you would say, you know, these break down as like theoretical linguistics, psychology and uh, corpus linguistics or something like that. Um, So those are, you know, multiple interdisciplinary elements within the cognitive sciences. So I kind of just do them all. uh, but I also invite other sorts of methods. And again, I, this is, I think, why I'm very driven by the methods you use come down to the questions you're asking, uh, because uh, 
you know, maybe your training is, you know, biasing you to ask certain questions um, uh, because, you know, it, it comes back to the, the kind of the classic phrase that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and I think that's true for many people. Like they have, well, here's my solution for everything because this is what I'm trained in. And thus, this is the answer to how you answer all the questions because it's the same thing. But if you're driven more by the questions themselves, then you have options because then you say, well, here's these questions. I have all sorts of different methods that can answer these different things, but they answer them in different ways. So how do I really want to answer those questions? Um, and that's the way I'm kind of guided. And I think that's how interdisciplinarity can arise in many good ways because different sources of information give you uh, uh, different insights. And if you're able to take those different sources of information uh, at face value and integrate them together or realize where they are incompatible and or one might not be quite so good, uh, it gives you a better sort of approach as opposed to say positions where people just say, well, that's this, you know, here's this line of methodology. I don't like that one. So I'm just going to reject it outright and not, not pay attention to whatever's happening in that, that entire field, which is, I think, very short-sighted. Short-sighted um, yet commonplace at the same time. Very, you know? very. Yeah. And I think there's m many reasons for that. You know, people have, are comfortable with what they do, and that's totally fine. Um, it, it, you know, if you are from, say, a very uh, literary humanities side of things, and then you pick up my very psychological book, um, maybe it's not quite that psychological, but if you pick up a book that's more psychological, and suddenly I'm talking about brain science, it might seem unfamiliar to you, even though it might be actually very relevant. Just it's, it doesn't have the things that you're the jargon you're used to, it might not have the, you know, you're not look at, used to looking at graphs or something. I don't know. Um, uh, so I could see where, you know, it might be uh, challenging for people that you're not used to that. But I would like to believe at least that people can learn things from other other disciplines. And um, I think that's important. And and like you said, it's, it's important for kind of breaking down those silos. At the same time, though, uh, I will say that it's very difficult to be purely interdisciplinary and have no silo at all mm. um, because then you don't really have any place yeah. that you belong to. Uh, and that's a challenge unto itself. That's interesting. Yeah. Belonging is interesting. Like, um, you know, comfort being too comfortable is bad, but some comfort is perhaps necessary. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. it gives your work um, intelligibility. It gives it, it gives it a space an audience, you know, Kathy Weeks has written um, uh, really uh, beautifully about the ways in which, you know, especially uh, she has a book called constituting feminist subjects where she talks about like um, this, the paradigm debate between structuralism and post-structuralism and how, it's kind of like in the weeds, you know, we're, we're kind of struggling to figure out what we're talking about at a point where, or, or at a moment where really these labels should be functioning to help us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, comfort and disciplinarity. I'm really interested um, in that sort of relationship, but in a sense, how comics, the study of something like comics, which is a multimodal form of communication, 
you know, tests our disciplinary muscles almost, or builds new disciplinary muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, one that, you know, ones that are almost like just organically or naturally inter- interdisciplinary. Right. Um, because yes, of course, like we need these, these categories, but it sounds as though, you know, your academic career was in part marked by these moments of methodological blockage to use the <laughs> term in comics where you know you ran into somebody who intervened and said like that is not the right way to do it and that blockage kind of rerouted you and you had to like learn this whole other grammar which was an academic method and and ultimately you got to this point where it's clear that your work kind of straddles i would say a structural and post-structural kind of critique um you know, like ultimately who understands comics is arguing that the appearance of greater transparency and at times complexity in comics gave birth to some contemporary assumptions that see the medium as somehow spontaneously a more intelligible, rich, or immediate way to communicate information without doing the work to put pressure on that assumption. But in, you know, the visual language of comics, you know, that's not really where your, your thinking is at yet. And, and, in many ways, your findings have changed. And the biggest shift seems to be an attachment to a certain structuralist approach to language uh, that that has changed in the newest book, which you're now calling, you know, that structuralist approach to language an outdated view of language. Yeah. I mean, that's funny that you're, <laughs> you have a very nice analysis of my, my, uh, my intellectual thinking. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, in the visual language of comics, I was very much trying to convey aspects about the representations. And um, even though at times I think, you know, it it depends how nuanced you want to be about the the nature of the linguistic theories. Um, One of the things that I think people confused people or um, maybe uh, people were wishing for more information about when I did the visual language of comics is nowhere in there do I kind of declare my allegiance to any sort of school of linguistics Hmm. Um, because i I, i'm not like a traditional structural linguist in in this susurian or early you know uh jacobson style you know structural linguist from the early part of the 20th century um uh, but i'm also you know i i'm more in the kind of current mode of construction grammar but really i'm linked to my teacher's sort of uh model of language, which my teacher being Ray Jackendoff, who himself straddles different sort of linguistic theories. Um, but I never stated that outright. So I think a lot of people made lots of assumptions about, well, he's, he's a Chomskyan or he's a, you know, he's not a cognitive linguist or he, mm-hmm. you know, people want to identify you into a camp. And I kind of on purpose didn't do that, but then it resulted that people made lots of assumptions about what I was arguing that weren't entirely the case. Um, but you know, ultimately, I'm both a kind of uh, Jack and Doffian um, linguist, but I'm also a psycholinguist. And, and I've been very much trained in psycholinguistics. And I've always tried to merge, you know, my thinking about how these things work uh, from both sides. So, um, you know, my experimental work uh, has greatly informed my theoretical out, uh, outlook. Um, and my theories inform the experimentation and, and empirical work. Um, so I think what was different about the visual language of comics when I wrote it was 
I wrote that shortly after finishing my PhD. Um, and there was a lot more theory there than there were studies that had been done empirically. Um, and shortly after I finished doing it, we started running all sorts of experiments on all sorts of different things, uh, kind of using the visual language comics as, uh, as hypotheses in many ways, because it was more theory driven. Uh, so we then started gathering corpus data on the way different comics work, or we were gathering data on more data uh, from brain studies, or we're doing more data from more studies on layout and lots of different you know, sources of data. Um, and so what then who understanding comics was able to benefit from was all of this additional data that we gathered and that other people uh, started gathering data. And so I, uh, you know, really the, the kind of theoretical core is the same. It's just that it's now oriented towards the results of the experimentation uh, rather than the kind of guiding theory behind that experimentation. Now I can comment on the integration of the results of all the, the all that data that we that we were able to gather, uh, which then further inform a new sort of theoretical output. So um, I've kind of found in all the books that I've written uh, that they both serve as sort of like reports of the things that we have done already or other people have done already in integrating it and presenting it to people. But at the same time, they also serve as kind of a statement of work yet to be done and a forecasting of what directions should we go to learn more about uh, these topics. So, um, yeah. So, and, and I think, it, you know, changing one's perspective as you learn more information is you know, what you would really want out of science and uh, uh, the progression of, of a discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, you're so self-reflective about um, method and it's, it sounds like, you know, your work with the Visual Language Lab has been a, an education for you in inter, what interdisciplinary work uh, looks and feels like, um, which, you know, I think is an interesting, like a different model from especially the perspective of someone who has a humanities training. Right. Like my mm -hmm. training, you know, largely uh, encourages you to if you are entering into a conversation, enter it largely as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, and as Patricia Hill Collins points out, often in, in an almost like adversarial mode and your mode is like totally not adversarial. It's uh, it's. It's about trying to build. Um, yeah. I mean, I will confess, yeah. I have been adversarial at times with various sure. theorists, sure, and theories. Uh, that's, you know, I won't uh, completely excuse myself from that. But yeah, 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 sure. There's a combativeness in your books too, right? Like the the Sitta, right? This assumption of, of the transparency of comics is something that you take issue with. And it seems to me like that assumption of, of transparency is rooted in this kind of triumphalist impulse, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a kind of triumphalism within comic studies, a desire to privilege what's assumed to be uniquely impactful about a medium that we love. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to cite studies like you do, you know, that suggest people with autism spectrum disorder do tend to respond in positive ways to graphic texts. Um, you know, you write that they may assist understanding, decrease loneliness, increase social interaction. But there are still issues with just kind of resorting to a certain triumphalism, right? 
Um, right. And, and I think the case of autism is a good one because the guiding assumption has been that uh, even though individuals with autism may sometimes struggle with, uh, or struggle is the wrong word, have a different processing orientation to uh, text, uh, they don't yeah. to visuals and visuals are kind of processed easily. But as we, as, as I, you know, discuss in that chapter, um, uh, it's a lot more complex than that. <laughs> and while there is some evidence that uh, individuals with autism uh, prefer comics over text and, and receive great benefit from them, um, you know, so do neurotypical individuals. Um, and there's also evidence that individuals with autism do things at least neurocognitively in their brains that are comparable to text and the way that text is processed in that sort of different manner of processing text is also happening in the kind of different processing of, uh, of visual sequences. Um, so it's not straightforward like visuals equal good for individuals with autism. Uh, it seems to be much more complex than that. And um, it might be that, well, visuals are equally challenging or have a different type of processing uh, style uh, the same way that they do for text. But again, if you have proficiency, then you're even better. And, and uh, it helps you comprehend uh, in ways that uh, are more comparable to neurotypical individuals. Um, and again, it's not to say uh, in that case that there's any sort of value on one processing sort of type over another, but so there are different, there are clear differences. Um, but the main story is that it's not as simple as the kind of myths and stories that are perpetuated about these types of processing. Um, and uh, I, I did struggle quite a bit with this sort of Sitta idea of sequential image transparency assumption, whether to call it a myth or an assumption, or, you know, I, I struggled a, a long time on that acronym. And I don't know if I'm ever mm. completely satisfied, but um, uh, the idea is just that we hold various, you know, predisposed beliefs about way things happens and, and people repeat them over and over and over again uncritically. And then it turns out that when you dig deeper, it might not actually be holding up entirely. And, um, uh, and comic studies, I will say, is filled with those. There's so many examples of these sorts of things that, you know, people have claimed and held on to over the years um, and have never resolved, uh, re revised their sort of um, understanding of, despite, you know, loads of evidence to the contrary. You know, a good example of this is the idea that, you know, you're filling in the gaps, quote unquote, in between each panel. And that's just, I mean, we've shown loads of experiments showing that is not true. You're not reading image by image, sort of fusing them together with some sort of, you know, injecting, you know, missing information in the space between panels. Uh, again, first of all, that's a conflation of layout as in the gutter as a physical space has some sort of meaning space there also. That's a, a mixing up of two separate things. Um, and then there's just all sorts of evidence that you just don't do that. You know, sometimes you're doing more, you know, weighty processing on the basis of the information that you're given. Um, and sometimes you are filling in information that you're not seeing and making inferencing, doing inferencing and making inferences. 
Um, but it's not at all the sort of process that is, you know, comic studies sort of repeats in every single paper that you read, where people say, oh, you're filling in the gaps between every panel and it makes it a participatory sort of experience. Well, I mean, you do the same exact processing in, in pure language. It's not a, you know, magical thing that happens, but it's just different. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that Sean Kleefeld argues in web comics is that, you know, one of the unique things about web comics is that they are these participatory things, right? There is something, there's a kind of direct link between you and the uh, viewer. That's simply not the case um, in the kinds of comics that you're, you're talking about, right? I think that there's a, there's a case to be made. Well, I think there's a case to be made. It depends what you mean by participatory. If what you're talking about is participatory in the sense of your brain does something when reading a sequence, um, well, that's this true of everything. <laughs> it's true of language, yeah, yeah. spoken language, few written language. Yeah, there's yeah. few exceptions to that. And um, the and and really, you know, if you dig down deep, I've I've argued against say McLeod's notion of closure. Um, you know, really, what closure means is mind does something here mm-hmm. <laughs> and and kind of it's a promissory note for what the mind is actually doing which uh or brain is actually doing which I, I hope i'm at least getting closer to identifying what is actually going on based on the experiments but if, if that's what you mean by participatory that i don't think is the case but if in the case of web comics specifically if what is meant by participatory is the fact that you have access to the author, you can write on their message boards, you can reply to them, you can uh, remix their things because there's a whole remixing sort of meme culture online. Right. You're building a different kind of visual lexicon in concert with your audience. Yeah, exactly. In that case, yeah, that's absolutely participatory because you are directly participating with your readers, right? And that's a different but that's a different thing. But I think that is a very valid way to talk about the participatory uh, qualities of web comics, say versus a print comic, uh, where maybe what you are the, the, the highest degree of participation might be the letters columns or in older times, or, um, you know, off outside the context of the comic talking to authors online or something. Um, that's a different type of participatory experience. And yeah, there, I think web comics do afford that. And um, it really just depends on the way that you're framing that participatory nature. Yeah. And I think like there's um, a weird way in which web comics have allowed for more kind of odd and potentially alienating, <laughs> you know, experiments in, in comics writing you know, even Nathan Pyle's Strange Planet, which is this giant success, is an odd comic, you know, just objectively. Sure. Um, and, you know, you note that complex layouts often require alternate routes and that, you know, art, these artistic layouts will force readers or comprehenders to update the rules that they use to guide their reading. Yeah. I wonder, you know, how much experiments matter in affording this kind of participatory experience and whether comics on the web are a more hospitable place for that. I mean, there's a long history of like comics like Michael DeForge's and, and, you know, that test the boundaries of coherence comics that are these surreal trips through trauma and memory and dissociation. Right. Um, you know, do, do web comics, you know, do you see a shift happening where there's less of an emphasis perhaps on the pattern? Well, I mean, certainly I think 
even experimental books might be using patterns. They, right. they might just be using them in different ways oftentimes. Um, but sometimes they might indeed be breaking the patterns. And I think there's a couple related things going on. So um, if you're, again, you can be experimental across any of those sorts of structures we talked about. You can be experimental in the layout, but not in the storytelling in the, the least bit. You could be presenting a very normal, and uh, you know, conventional uh, sort of layout. Uh, but really, you know, pushing the boundaries of coherence in your storytelling. Um, you know, th- there's so different structures you can do this. <laughs> What's that? Sorry, there's a term you use uh, in the visual language of comics called pr- uh, promiscuous transitions that I like. Yeah, right? yeah, which is a, no, yeah, well, I, I, well, that's kind of a theoretical idea that you're connecting every panel to every other panel, which is also untrue. Um I mean, it is possible to have that, but it, it would also overwhelm human memory if you didn't have this is, yeah. some sort of chunking mechanisms or grouping mechanisms involved also. Um, but the, the point uh, that I was going to make is that um, so these sorts of challenging things that go against your um, the patterns that you have acquired will indeed often require some more updating as you go because you're going to have to like revise your expectations a lot more. But there also seems to be an interesting phenomena is that um, that type of updating process might actually feel good as a reader to some degree. Yeah, I love it. To Yeah, right. So like, as you are given things that you might not expect, you have to do that updating, but that updating then makes you feel like, oh, I get it now, right? That sort of experience. And in some other lines of research, they talk about there being kind of a U curve of this experience where um, you're kind of negotiating between the cost of something that is having to do more updating to work harder to understand something harder versus easier and the pleasurable pleasurability of that thing. So um, there's kind of like, you know, in one corner, there is, um, you know, it's very easy to understand um, and very pleasurable, right? Um, um, but oftentimes the argument with this U-curve is that things that are too easy to understand or are very easy to understand um, are not as pleasurable because they're just too easy. You're like, oh, well, that's what, you know, so so what? It's super easy for me to digest this. Um, but on the you know, the opposite end would be something that is, you know, very costly to understand. And as a result of that, you don't find much pleasure in it. It's, it's so hard to understand. You go, this just hurts to try to make sense of it. I don't like this. Right. Yeah. And so the idea is that somewhere in the middle, there's this kind of sweet spot where it's just hard enough to understand that it forces you to do some, you know, updating uh, but then you get pleasure out of that updating process. Um, and that's the, the sweet spot. And I think often that that is that feeling is what people mean by the participatory cognitive activity that like, I had to do a little bit of work to negotiate things that were a little bit unexpected, but as a result of that, I enjoy it. And I think that's what people really mean when they talk about, you know, the participatory nature of understanding you know, comics, but it, again, it applies to, um, you know, texts and jokes and advertisements and all sorts of different things. Absolutely. 
And um, I think it, you know, there's so many, I wanted to compare it to, you know, art house cinema as well, the kind of uh, the way in which some, some film can be completely unintelligible um, without a pattern. Right. And, and in many cases, these, you know, graphic texts can be comparable to art house cinema. And you've written about the, the connection between discourse comic discourse and film. And something you said reminded me of an exchange that I uh, heard recently between Noah Van Skyver and um, a, a cartoonist named Sammy Elwani, who has a, a book out with Conundrum Press, who's you know, uh, centered here in Nova Scotia. Uh, Elwani's book is called The Pleasure of the Text. And, you know, uh, Van Skyver and Elwani are talking about whether or not um, a book as complex as James Joyce's Ulysses would ever be possible within the comics medium. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wondered, you know, and it's something that Van Skyver just says kind of spontaneously, but um, I wondered if that question made sense to you. Like, you know, Ulysses is imagined to be like literally, you know, Jacques Derrida wrote about Joyce um, in uh, Ulysses Gramophone and, and talked about how Joyce's books reflect this idea that there is no more dense delivery uh, mechanism than the book. Um, and, and Derrida talks about two words in Joyce as generating like a machine of meaning, um, this kind of endless supply of information. I, I, do you understand the question, I guess, that they're raising <laughs> that like we're on this like trajectory almost that we haven't yet reached where like Emil Ferris's, you know, um, my favorite thing is monsters in these books, which Jenkins writes about as this kind of masterpiece. Um, that doesn't yet, you know, represent the zenith of the complexity that is possible within comics. Does that question even sort of make sense to you? Um, well, I have, there's a couple counters I have to that. So one, I think sure. certainly it's possible to make masterpieces mm-hmm. with visual languages. Um, uh, secondly, I would say, what do you mean by complexity? Um, sure. Yeah. And uh, who defines it too? Yeah. Who defines what that complexity is and what are the properties of that complexity? Um, you know, if it's comparison to say Ulysses, then there's all sorts of structural things that are going on in there, right. That are um, interesting. And you could certainly do comparable structural things to uh, obviously not identical, but given the affordance of visual sequencing compared to say verbal sequencing, yeah, you can make something comparable to that, whether it's going to be, you know, as good or whatnot, that's up to, you know, people to decide. Um, um, The other part about that is again, to to return to a point that I kind of make in who understands comics um, is that to some degree, I think it's counterintuitive and not accurate to think about comics as a uniform thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. to, to think about say, you know um, you know, this is another one of those sort of zeitgeist sort of, you know, assumptions that people make ever since say McLeod's understanding comics where he's, you know, and people frequently argue, well, it's, it's a medium, not a genre and et cetera. Um, and then, you know, you look at the, the point I make in, in, my, my chapter analyzing data from different comics from Europe, Asia, and the United States is that there are systematic patterns that are happening in these different cultures in the way in which their storytelling and layouts and whatnot progress. Um, 
and it's not just that the cultures are different or that you know places have different ways of doing things but it's that they're systematically different in a way that's patterned implying different systems that they are using i would call those systems visual languages um and so if indeed it's the case that say asian uh uh uh, books are using a totally different sort of system that has underlying properties that are similar, but ultimately appear in very different ways. To what extent can we say there is a monolithic comics, quote unquote, right? Um, so like if your comparison for, you know, Ulysses is books in English, well, uh, if you're then saying comics, are you talking about the visual languages of North America? Are you talking about the visual languages of the entire world? Then just kind of washing over the clear differences that appear in structure and the differences that then go along with that in who is comprehending those structures, right? So like, um, you know, a masterpiece from Japan might not be seen that way by someone who only reads American superhero comics because they have different representations of a different language. They have a different visual language that they're used to reading only superhero comics than reading only manga and vice versa. So the definitions of what would then can be considered a masterpiece in one or the other um, is going to be constrained by the specifics of the structures of those different systems. Um, so to some degree, it's, doesn't make sense to talk about, you know, a masterpiece of quote unquote comics, because that's not a single thing. And there's multiple visual languages that are being used around the world to produce comics. And they, while they have similarities that can be compared, uh, they are not entirely the same thing, right? Um, and you see this this sort of disagreement happening in sort of fights that people get into online where people are saying, uh, you know, graphic novels, comic strips, comic books, manga, it's all comics versus people who, you know, will say, I don't read comics, I read manga. And those are not compatible. Obviously, there's a reason why those people get into arguments with each other, but they have clearly different understandings of the things that they're engaging with. And um, to my mind, at least the empirical evidence is that indeed manga are different than comics, even though they share various structural features, they have different properties, right? And again, there are social factors that an empirical analysis like mine won't bear in mind. Something like, um, you know, Emil Ferris's uh, books belong to a sociocultural context of, you know, graphic novels versus, say, a superhero comic that's a floppy, you know, comic. There is a sociocultural weight that they each one carries. Uh, that may lead one person or another to declare one as, you know, a masterpiece versus another um, that has nothing to do with their structural properties um, and might have nothing to do with the, you know, the quality of their 
uh, storytelling even. And it has more to do with the sociocultural context in which they appear. Yeah, um, I absolutely want to come back to uh, this idea that you can just paint with, you know, a broad brush and say it's all comics, um, you know, in relationship to another thing, actually, that Kleefeld uh, writes about in web comics, like intellectual property in the age of mm-hmm. the web comic. But I wanted to pick up on something you said there, like um, that, you know, um, the the layouts, the structural, the grammar itself comes from a social cultural context um, that, that a comics tradition, uh, comes out of, this is something that runs throughout your entire work. And it's just, again, data driven. The fact that you kind of need to foreground difference to gain a, a real understanding of how, you know, human beings create culture. Um, you, you know, you need to, uh, uh you know, have a deep understanding of, of, uh, the importance of that context. And, and I think, and I think we need to dwell in that difficult position of like wanting to lean into a certain triumphalism around, let's say comics, or, you know, I mentioned music earlier, right? Like there's a certain kind of triumphalism, I would say, academically around um, music, especially in the humanities as this like liberatory thing. And, you know, even in the sciences, it's, it's ability to help people reacquire speech it's easy to just assume that music is magic, but what we're dealing with is not magic per se. Uh, it can be, <laughs> it can be grasped. Like, and yeah. I'm not even suggesting that um, texts in the humanities are are predicated on like magic. That's not, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I, I would not, I would not guess that's what you're saying, but yes. But yeah. they're, they're dealing with ideas in, in a more overtly abstract way. And, and this is, I think too, you know, where there's obviously still so much room um, for the kinds of reading that, you know, Wanzo was doing and others have done within comic studies, like, mm-hmm. you know, Box Brown, for example, uh, I gave a, you know, um, he gave me an interview for the podcast and at the end of that conversation, he says like one of the big benefits of comics is their ability to represent especially difficult and even traumatic experiences using symbols without re-traumatizing people. Mm-hmm. And like the goal of graphic text that I gravitate towards is usually to figure out a way to communicate a certain competence in feeling that, you know, film I feel can't do in the same way. Like, being moved by the representation of somebody else's suffering um, definitely requires empathetic identification and comics are very good at that, which is probably why they're sort of a cure for loneliness. But, uh, um, you know, it, it, I think that competence in feeling requires more than just empathetic identification. You know, the Mm -hmm. aesthetic representation of violence, especially in comics can either completely sensationalize the subject and desensitize us, I would say, still, you know, that assumption obtains, or it can, um, and this is what I think really great uh, texts do uh, in the comics medium, they can kind of defamiliarize the feeling of looking at violence, um, Mm -hmm. if you understand what I mean. (laughs) You know, like, like Box Brown's books, you know, will sometimes use very cartoonish depictions of violence and conflict, and you know, those can, in my view, allow witnesses to process grief without experiencing more trauma. Um, and that's distinct from other media in some ways. Has your research found any evidence of that? Do you think comics have any sort of ability to prompt ethically and politically active modes of witnessing? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a very fascinating question. I, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask that question, uh, but 
and, you know, certainly there's a whole subfield of graphic medicine, which yeah, is right. uh, a whole field devoted to the application of comics and graphics in uh, medical contexts, mm-hmm. uh, some of which include therapeutic, others which involve communication and health communication. Um, <clears throat> so that's a, a very wide um, encompassing study that I have kind of circled around and, and at least watched from afar um, that I find interesting. And, and my sense is that there might be evidence, if I recall papers that I've, you know, looked at at a glance uh, of therapeutic applications and whatnot, um, uh, that I, I believe there is sort of empirical evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm not an expert right. at that sort of uh, reading. Oh no worries. Um, I can I can ask you something that uh, you are an expert on. Uh, you <laughs> sure. said you're not like methodologically. Uh, you don't want to be pigeonholed. Uh, you've been. It's it's. You mentioned that uh, the closest you've come is to be called a Chomskyan, which you know uh, really clicked for me because it does seem like your work is you know like so much work indebted to Chomsky, and especially mm-hmm. in terms of. Well, you know, I'll get to it's this idea of kind of psychic continuity. Um, you know, you talk about how like Chomsky has a really deep understanding of how that works in terms of cognition. But like mm-hmm. to just boil it down, like, you know, there's these kind of different registers that comics operate in. Like they can be really dense and unpatterned and, and experimental or they can be very easy. And that seems to really hinge on this continuity factor, mm-hmm. you know, like whether an author, whether, you know, um, whether it's just an industry producing something is able to, you know, reproduce it endlessly or betray continuity. And like the example that you give, uh, and then I, I think, um, you know, uh, Kleefeld gives too, is Charles Schultz's repetition of particular panels. So, you know, Snoopy yeah. on his doghouse becomes iconic. And you say like, this is less a matter of self plagiarism than Snoop, uh, than, you know, Snoopy being representative of a visual lexicon. Yeah. Um, and Kleefeld is really talking about how um, that has been commodified, like how that that psychic continuity of Snoopy on the doghouse becomes uh, a source of just like, you know, massive profit through intellectual property. <laughs> and, and it's true, right? <laughs> Peanuts, yeah. Oh, yeah, Garfield, sure. like and my my shelf is littered with. So in, <laughs> yeah, in too. Yeah. our psychological experiments, we use Peanuts comic strips. Um, sure. Uh, in many cases. So um Many people have given me Snoopy dolls and toys mm-hmm. as gifts because of that, especially like graduating students. So my shelf is just covered in Snoopy yeah. dolls. So I, I can overtly see the commercialism on my shelf. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and, you know, like Garfield, of course, Jim Davis was like, he's notorious for having sold the rights to everybody mm-hmm. who would buy them. Uh, so right. Garfield, I grew up with Garfield being ubiquitous, but yeah. you know, like, What's interesting is like Kleefeld makes a claim, and I really like this idea that uh, that ubiquity has actually shaped the public's understanding of what comics are culturally and even structurally, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So continuity is conceptually important, but it's also commercially important. Um, And so like, and your work shows how poorly understood cognitively that repetition kind of is in terms of building. Yeah. Um, and I see a lot of Chomsky in that, if I may say. <laughs> yeah, at least in part. Um, yeah. yeah. So like, I will say I, I am, um, there's a reason why some of my work at least is at least some regards Chomsky in, which is that first of all, linguistics is hard to escape Chomsky and ideas. Um, and Chomsky is my academic grandfather. So um, <laughs> my 
uh, Chomsky was the mentor of my mentor. Oh, I see. So uh, there is a bit of that, although it's a lineage. Both, yes. So there is a lineage there, uh, but but there are many ways that both I and my advisor disagree with Chomsky's uh, right. claims about various things. It's pretty biologically determinist in certain ways, right? Uh, it depends. Yeah, it depends which aspect of it. But yes, see, it is. Um, and I certainly have a lot more um, appreciation for the integration of the cognitive and social. Mm-hmm. Um, and or the or the integration of the biological and social and the negotiation of that space. So I think in in many cases people think, oh, you know, I see tree structures on narrative, thus it's Chomskyan. But it's not. There's lots of linguistic theories that use tree structures. So um, I'm not strictly a Chomskyan, and I, in fact, the, my models in, greatly disagree with Chomskyan linguistics at this point. Um, these models should be to some extent adaptable, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it depends what the claims you're making are. And, and, and in many of the claims uh, that you bring up about, say, patternedness is somewhat the opposite of the current Chomskyan thinking. So Chomsky's latest thinking is very much sort of procedural uh, driven. There's kind of a single mechanism mm. of generative, generativity about language. And then, you know, it just takes the stuff that's in the lexicon and, and operates over it. Um, and that's the opposite of what, say, theories of construction grammar believe, which is what I lean towards and my mentor leans towards, uh, where uh, really it's about patterns and the patterns of language are very diverse and you memorize, you know, hundreds of thousands of patterns, not only words being patterns, but also sequences and, and phrases and idioms and the grammatical constructions themselves and the grammar itself is part of these patterns that make up your vocabulary and your vocabulary, the grammar actually is included in the vocabulary. And, um, you know, ultimately one of the big messages of the visual language of comics book and a lot of my work since has been, you know, against this idea that drawings have no structure and that there is no patterns involved. And there's an infinite number of, uh, you know, structures involved with drawings. And that's just not true that drawings are guided by um, structural patterns that you acquire. And like we were talking about in learning to draw, you need to acquire the vocabulary, a visual vocabulary in order to draw proficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're talking about then, you know, Snoopy on the doghouse, that is another established pattern that gets established by one author, particularly um, in production, at least, unless there's lots of other people who then are drawing Snoopy on doghouses right. uh, who acquire that pattern from him. Which is easy to acquire, incidentally. It is. It is. You know, it's just so, you know, so ubiquitous. It's, it's just... Yep. And, of course, comprehenders can acquire that pattern even if they can't produce it. Mm-hmm. So there's oftentimes with drawings an asymmetry between people's productive ability and their comprehensible comprehensibility, right? So people can comprehend drawings. They might not be able to produce those same drawings, which is oftentimes different than what happens in spoken languages where, you know, I can oftentimes produce language the same capacity that I can understand it. Um, Although that's not true of all languages. So I live currently in the Netherlands. I have been learning Dutch for several years. I am very much not Mm -hmm. fluent in Dutch. Um, in fact, right after I finish this podcast with you, I'm going to go practice my Dutch lesson right. for today. Are you using graphic texts? Um, I use Duolingo for I that see. mostly. Um, but um, 
you know, I, I can understand Dutch decently well at this point. Like if people are talking to me in Dutch, but I cannot produce it very well. And that's what a lot of people are like for graphics. They can right. understand it comprehensively, but they just can't produce it mm-hmm. to the same degree of fluency. Um, so those people have acquired the patterns. They have acquired the pattern of Snoopy on the doghouse, but they might not be able to produce it. Um, to the point of, um, you know, those patterns then being, you know, repeated all over culture um, and informing what people think comics are, I think that's absolutely true. And um, this, again, goes against somewhat the idea of comics as a medium specifically or being defined by its you know, meaning making properties um, like the idea that comics are sequential images, which is just doesn't it's it's not apparently the case. Um, and I think indeed the you know ubiquity of elements from comics entering into broader culture absolutely informs what uh, the way people perceive comics, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, even with phrasing like a comic book movie, right? Mm-hmm. If comics were purely just a medium and talking about the way in which they communicate, which I think is problematic on, unto itself, as I talked about with regard to cross-cultural visual languages, um, then the phrase comic book movie should make no sense whatsoever <laughs> because you're essentially saying like the comic book medium movie, like that's... Yeah, we don't say novel movies, you know what I mean? Yeah, novel yeah. movies, that's that's really weird, yeah. right? So um, in that way, you're seeing then comics as a sociocultural phenomena, which I think it absolutely mm-hmm. is. Um, uh, but, you know, people are talking, using the term in different ways when talking about different things. Yeah. And it does seem to hinge on a certain kind of like politics of literacy. Um, you know, like Frederick, yeah. uh, Frederick Wertham wrote Seduction of the Innocent in the mid 1950s and seemed to hit on a certain moral panic around comics. Mm-hmm. And then he, you know, like I'm thinking here about somebody like Wertham as a as a political figure and intellectual figure in the same way that Chomsky has become both things. Like mm-hmm. he becomes uh, a noted figure in American cultural politics because of seemingly his sense that comics actually could deter the development of like a literate population right. at a time when at a time when the comics industry is actually seeing a massive kind of post-war boom, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's weird that there was an audience for Wordham's anti-comics position. Like, right. And things right. have, it's weird how there's been a 180 where things have, have, where the graphic medium is now seen as a kind of gateway drug to literacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which so weird. also might not be as straightforward a position. Yeah. Either. Like, right? let's know what we're doing. I absolutely think comics help with literacy. As far as I know, there is data showing that. But again, there is this sequential image transparency assumption guided behind many of those, that, that notion of advocacy, right? As if, well, you get the visuals for free when reading comics and thus it helps you learn the words, um, which isn't the case because it's actually the case that when you're reading comics, you have to acquire the knowledge of the visuals and acquire the knowledge of the words and acquire how they go together. Um, you have to learn how to do all that. Um, that's, you know, you don't get any part of it for free. Um, 
which is you know part of why I go back to talking about development. Like, well, kids don't understand a sequence of images until f- age of four ish. So, um, you know, how can they be expected to just get the images for free then in helping them learn to read? You know, they have to develop both the fluency in the visuals just like they do of the text. And you're, I mean, I think your research could be such a boon for any kind of arts-based research in comics. I mean, you know, it seems to me that not underlying all of it, but like a, a subtext just in terms of having conversations with you about uh, why you started, you know, studying comics academically, like people read when they're having fun in general, not just when it comes to comics, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, people, people read the novel if they like the movie, they, they buy the album if they liked the, a song that was, you know what I mean? Like there's, mm-hmm. people are driven by that kind of uh, pleasure. And if we ignore that or don't, don't attempt to diagnose it um, right. objectively. Um, we're missing a lot. That's actually a very interesting statement that what you find in many of the studies of the use of comics in education uh, is two things. Um, you know, they are in fact inconsistent about whether, you know, comics give say a benefit to learning. Um, what you often find is that the largest benefit goes to the people who, um, uh, have the most experience with comics in the first place. So if you have the fluency, then you benefit. But if you don't have the fluency, you don't seem to benefit as much. However, in many of these studies, the enjoyment of the materials of the comics materials versus the non-comics materials is much higher for the comics materials. Yeah, right. So even if it doesn't seem to confer the advantage to learning, uh, for people who are less fluent in comics, they still seem to enjoy it more. Mm. Um, so, and, and there is something to be said for that as well um, in ter- in the learning process, that even if it's not giving you advantage, at least you're enjoying it more <laughs> than, than some other sort of format for learning. Um, yeah. And then maybe eventually, but out of enjoyment, you gain the fluency that you need and then you benefit from it even further, right? Yeah. But I think unless you have that understanding of the orientation of what's going on cognitively um, about issues of fluency, um, you can't just assume that, well, it's comic, so everybody's going to learn better now. And it just doesn't work that way. You have to, there's a lot more nuance involved here. Um, And it's worth, um, that's not to say we shouldn't be doing it. I absolutely am pushing and emphasizing and encouraging the use of comics in education, but Mm -hmm. it needs to be done with, you know, the mindset that it's not a magic bullet and where it is beneficial, you need to know for what reasons it's beneficial at the same time. Yeah. We don't need a gateway drug model of education or a magic bullet model. Like yeah. that's what got us into this mess in some ways. And, and we need to, I think just, yeah, have, have definitely some degree of understanding of human psychology and the fact that, uh, yeah, people learn better when they, when they love the thing they're learning um, and, and, you know, Jen- Henry Jenkins says in his book, uh, uh, that we've seen a kind of increasing sentimentalization of everyday life that sees people holding on to things that have outlived their usefulness. And he says like comics have been this for him uh, and that we can't easily separate our belongings from our sense of belonging. Um, and I think, you know, that connection to text, which is increasing, I mean, like web comics are great, but, but that 
specific connection to the sacredness almost of text mm -hmm. uh, as a delivery mechanism is sort of severed, you know, in the relationship to an Instagram feed, I believe. But anyway, that's perhaps a whole other conversation. I've kept you <laughs> a very long time. Thanks so much for making the time. No problem. It's been a pleasure. It's been a very interesting conversation. It went in lots of ways that I didn't necessarily expect, but that's uh, probably a good thing. <laughs>